Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and if you've been with the podcast for a while, you've probably noticed a sudden ax- a sudden absence of my face, and I apologize for that. Um, I just The schedule's been a little crazy lately, and so I haven't had the time that I usually do to create a polished video, and so it's been only audio, as it will be this week, but I do foresee bringing my face back into the forefront here in the near future so just bear with me there but we will be continuing our study in the book of ecclesiastes today we will be talking about verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2 and it reads so i turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same amount happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and is striving after the wind. So having expounded upon wisdom and pleasure, and all that they will not provide, Koheleth, the speaker, Solomon, now makes a literary observation, and he compares wisdom and folly in very poetic form. Verse 12, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So he juxtaposes wisdom with madness and folly, that they are polar opposites here. But what can the man do who comes after the king, namely his successor? What can my successor do but what has already been done? As he said earlier in Ecclesiastes, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. 
and there is nothing new under the sun. That his successor will not do anything new. That there will always be certain things. Because what has been seen has been seen before. You know that phrase, history tends to repeat itself? This is what we're talking about. That everything Solomon is seeing has been noticed by others before him. But they were unable to change the inevitable, just as Solomon is unable to change the inevitable. And so here Solomon emphasizes the futility of thinking that we will be better off as wise people. The so-called wisdom of man is but folly before God, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher than ours. God is not like us. I've um, benefited greatly lately from listening to cathedral music, to these big thunderous pipe organs from when the churches were these big open spaces. And I think R.C. Sproul sums up best from what I've seen part of the the logic behind these big church buildings from like the medieval times and he writes in his book the holiness of god church architecture varies every church building communicates some kind of nonverbal message in the past the gothic cathedrals were designed to focus the attention on god's transcendence the use of high ceilings vaulted space towers and spires all served to communicate that in this building, people met with the holy, end quote. So the, the driving force behind the design of those old cathedrals was to express the immenseness of God, that the immensity of God, how big and grand and pure he is in comparison with us. And everything about that space was designed to draw our thoughts to that. And so the pipe organ, for example, is beautiful thunder, like the voice of God. And so in short, God is not like us. But there's perhaps no greater example of that than the cross of Christ itself, as Paul illustrates for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of his age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the way that God is wise is not the same way that men are wise, the way that people are wise. Human wisdom is not on par with God's wisdom. There's no equality there. Which begs the question, what truly is the value of wisdom if it does not compete with God? And I think Solomon was asking the same question. Back to the text in verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is gain in light than in darkness. And so, wisdom is distinguished from foolishness as light from dark. And the Hebrew word for wisdom used here, hakma, is attributed by some linguistic sources as meaning skill as pertaining to war or technical labor, such as sailing. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, of hakma. Fools despise hakma and instruction. And notice that Solomon here attributes wisdom to knowledge and instruction. Others, other translations say discipline, but wisdom is not simply being smart. It entails a sense of discipline and technical application of said knowledge. Psalm 37 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. The instruction of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not, do not falter. And so Solomon likens this intellectual skill to light as opposed to darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. But the wise, says Solomon, do not get a fairer deal here. They are not, quote, better off than the fools, for they all die. They die alongside the fools, that regardless of how much intelligence you acquire, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many seminaries you attend or conferences you go to, you will share the same fate as the uneducated. Wisdom may have value in terms of acquiring a life of pleasure, but it cannot extend one's life or spare them from the coming death. It says in Hebrews that it is appointed for all men to die. And then comes judgment. And Solomon's asking the question, what is the point then if we're all going to die? And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is hevel or vanity that that catchphrase of Ecclesiastes, this is also vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And so I hated life, 
because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. As he says in chapter 1, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is the conundrum. Some have likened this idea of death as this predator that is always chasing us. Now you can't escape him, you can outlast him for a while, but in the end death will always have its prey. And this is often the outlook that many people have. And Solomon, I think, is appealing to that worldview in a sense here, because you cannot escape death. Regardless of what you do here, you will die. You will experience death. And the Bible says that after death comes judgment. You, you will stand before God, regardless of what you do in your life. But there is a remedy for this problem. You see, when we stand before, a before God in judgment, our list of do's and don'ts, our, our resume, our rap sheet, whatever you want to call it, is but filthy rags. We bring nothing of substance to the table here when we stand before God. As it says in Hebrews 9, So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ is the remedy to this problem of our own goodness. As Augustine once put it, Thou hast made us for thee, and our heart is unquiet, it is restless, until it finds its rest in thee. But sin has left us all polluted. We are corrupted by a nature we inherited from birth, from the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And we need to be cleansed from sin in order to produce anything of substance. And Leviticus 14 illustrates this through imagery, through the image of sacrifices. God is painting a picture of what Christ will do. So in Leviticus 14, he says, And he being Aaron the priest, shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand and shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord. And the priest shall put some of that oil that is in his hand on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot in the place where the blood of guilt offering was put and the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed to make atonement for him before the lord so there's this is part of the instructions in leviticus for the cleansing of someone with leprosy which leprosy in that context was regarded as a, an outworking, an outward manifestation of a spiritual problem, of a spiritual sickness. That leprosy represented sinfulness, one who was eaten up with sin, to the point where it manifested itself in the physical. 
and these directions to cleanse hold spiritual significance even now. Because Christ was the lamb of sacrifice on the cross. And he took upon himself the penalty of our sins. And that was applied to the account of everyone that would be saved. And then we are sprinkled with oil afterwards. Why? Because we are anointed as if we were in his family. The Bible says that we have been adopted as sons by God. Hebrews 9 explains it in this way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For of the blood of goats and bulls, or lambs, as we read in Leviticus 14, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All that to say, if the blood of lambs was done for the atonement of sin in the immediate, in those Levitical days, how much more will Christ, the final and perfect sacrifice offered up without sin, cleanse us on the inside? John Owen, in his commentary on Hebrews, puts it this way, and he says, he does not say, Jesus is come, or the Son, or the Son, or the Son of God, but, quote, Christ being come. Under that name and notion was he promised from the beginning, and is the fundamental article of the faith of the church, that the Messiah was to come. Quote, all that desires, all their desires and expectations were fixed on the coming of the Messiah, Hence, he that was to come was the name whereby they expressed their faith in him. So Christ is the culmination of the sacrifice imagery of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch as a whole. All of it points back to Christ and what he did on the cross when he laid himself down as a sacrificial lamb. And he atoned for your sin and for mine, and the sin of everyone that ever would be, that God would call. And everyone that will have him, shall have him, if they come with faith and repentance. And so then, according to the perfect wisdom of God, a redeemer has been provided. Not just any redeemer, but a sufficient redeemer a perfect redeemer, a righteous redeemer, who has suffered the penalty for our sins, that we might be grafted into his fold as his sheep, because Christ is the shepherd of all who repent of their sins and trust in him for salvation. As it says in 1 Peter, that Christ bore our sins in his body 
in order that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. And by his stripes we are healed, we are restored, we are made whole. And you who were once far off have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I implore you today to be reconciled to God, to repent of your sins and turn to Christ for salvation. To put your trust in Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice, who is the only wise and eternal king. God bless. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab, links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That's something that I've written. That's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative Word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.